I heard a story uh, once of a, of a kid who asked his dad at Christmas, Dad, who is Jesus? And the father replied, well, he's the reason for the season. And the kid was trying to figure things out, and so he said, well, but Dad, I thought Santa Claus was the reason for the season. And his dad said, well, son, I guess he is if you prefer a Sony PlayStation instead of Everlasting Life. I, which do you prefer? I know the church answer and what you're going to, but a game system can be pretty cool, right? They've got a couple of new ones out this year, but you can't get them. Uh, but, you know, eternal life is, for lack of a better term, eternal, right? So it's the gift that keeps on giving, I guess. Uh, This Advent season, our theme has been the weary world rejoices, and we've seen that there are several things that can help us when we're weary, uh, and the world seems especially weary uh, this year. Hope uh, gives us reason to rejoice, knowing that uh, that that this isn't the end, that there's something more, something better is coming. And, And it's possible to have peace in the weary world, knowing that God is still at work, and then also, uh, we, we know that God is with us, and that makes a big difference, especially in uncertain times. But sometimes I, I wonder why. Do you ever, do you ever wonder uh, why God would, would, would go to these extreme measures to send his only son to this weary world in the first place? I, I, have you ever thought about what Jesus left in order to bring us peace and hope and salvation, in order to dwell among us? Uh, As God's son, Jesus left his home in heaven with all of its beauty and splendor, walls of jasper with gates of pearl and and streets of gold and the river of life and the throne of God. He also stepped away from being the object of worship, right? Uh, The the angels worshiping him and, and praising God and all of heaven focused on him. And of course, he left the purity and holiness of heaven. In heaven, there's no evil or sin or injustice or wrong or disappointments or pain. There's only righteousness and holiness and goodness. He also left his proximity with his father. Sure, sure, he stayed in contact and communicated with God while he was here on earth, but it it was completely different. I mean, it it really is kind of mind-boggling to go down that rabbit hole of of, uh, discovering or thinking about everything that it must have meant for Jesus to leave his home in heaven and to step into our world. I mean, it's it's mind-boggling to me anyway because there's such a contrast between what he left and what he experienced when he arrived. He he did not arrive in a palace, but in a stable. Well, well, strike that, a cave, I guess, right? Um, a, A place where a manger and animals were. It had a manger for a bed. Actually, his, his, his initial arrival was, was as a developing baby inside of a teenager's womb, right? I mean, that's the, that's, uh, I mean, talk about a contrast. Instead of living in, in the expanse of heaven, he limited himself to a few centimeters of growing cells inside of a, a, of a little girl's womb, a, a teenager's womb. And then when, when he was born, it, it was into a, a, a dirty barn. There were, there were animals gathered around instead of angelic worshipers. I mean, a far cry from heaven. And, and just let me tell you, the smells were not the incense of the heavenly, uh, heavenly uh, aromas. Uh, no, no wealth but poverty, not in a castle, actually no home at all for a little while, and, and not to a world of purity but to one saturated by sin. Philip Yancey in his book, Disappointment with God, describes it this way. He says, imagine for a moment becoming a baby again, giving up language and muscle coordination and and the ability to eat solid food and control your bladder. God as a fetus, 
Or imagine yourself becoming a sea slug. That analogy is probably closer, he says. In, uh, on that day in Bethlehem, the maker of all, uh, maker of all that is, took form as a helpless, dependent newborn. Why? I, I, I mean, I, I know this probably isn't your first Christmas, right? Uh, uh, but, but instead of just giving the surface answers today, I want us to really, really think about it. Why? It, because if you just look at all of those, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, objectively speaking, what would motivate the Son of God to leave his seat at God's right hand and become a helpless infant? The story doesn't get any easier to understand when we realize that that, that the the life that Jesus lived culminated in death on a Roman cross. Why would the prince of heaven do this? I, I guess what I'm asking is what is God's reason for the season? In, in answering that, I, I think we'll zero in on the most important reason for us to rejoice in this weary world. One reason put forth by, uh, by, by some would be that Jesus came in order to fulfill prophecy. There, there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament predicting that a Savior, the Messiah, was coming, and Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. Just a few examples. He was born in Bethlehem. That was prophesied uh, in the Old Testament. He was preceded by a messenger who was John the Baptist, and, and uh, those prophecies were fulfilled. He was born uh, of a virgin, and that uh, was prophesied in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, about his, his life later on, it prophesied that the Messiah would, would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and... Uh, uh, and sure enough, that's exactly what happened, and Jesus did that. It prophesied that he would be pierced uh, for our transgressions, and sure enough, his hands and feet and side were pierced as he was crucified. All of those things were prophesied in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. In fact, uh, author Peter Stoner, in his book Science Speaks, says that the odds of Jesus fulfilling even a handful of those prophecies is, is really astronomical. I, I can't even pronounce the math. It's, it's, it's one in, I guess I would say it's 100 million million or 10 to the 17th power. I'm sure there's a word for that and you mathematicians can fill me in later. Somebody's Googling it even as we speak. Uh, but, but, but Stoner says that, that we can picture the immensity of that, the odds against one person, Jesus, being the one that would fulfill every single one of those prophecies. Uh, it's just astronomical. He, he says, picture it this way. Imagine taking uh, that many, uh, 100 million million silver dollars, and spreading them across the state of Texas. They'd be about two feet deep. So that many silver dollars spread all across the, the, the state of Texas, two feet deep, and then take one of those silver dollars and, and put a mark on it somehow so you can distinguish it from all the others, and then throw it into that Texas-sized pile, stir it up, and then blindfold someone and tell them to reach in and pull out a coin, and the chances of that coin that they pull out being the marked coin describes the odds of Jesus fulfilling even a few of those Old Testament prophecies. And yet he fulfilled them all. And, uh, and, and he defeated the odds. And so he came to fulfill prophecy. Well, he did. But, but I think there's even a deeper reason why he came, right? Many would say that the reason Jesus came was, was to, uh, to get rid of the sin problem. Sin had ravaged humanity. It had destroyed people, families, and nations. We, we saw last week how sin separated uh, the creation, Adam and Eve, from the, the creator, God, in the Garden of Eden. And, and so throughout the Old Testament, God had, had judged sin and evil, and sin had to go. There, were, there had to be a way to overcome the sin that was enslaving humanity. And, and yes, Jesus did indeed come to conquer sin. 
It's a reason that Jesus came. I would argue that God still had a deeper reason for the season. Let's let's spend a few minutes today looking at some specific aspects of the Christmas story that, that I think gives some clues as to why Jesus came. To start out, I, uh, I want to refer to Matthew chapter 1. There's a passage there that, um, that preachers usually don't choose for their inspirational Christmas texts. Uh, it's not dramatic reading by any stretch. If you want to read it later, that's great. We're not actually going to read it now. It's, it's a list of names. Verse 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy of Jesus. Very exciting, inspiring stuff, right? So-and-so begat so-and-so and all of those things. But, but we're not going to read it today, but there, there are a lot of significant names in that list, and, and you could really uh, go through that and, and, and study a lot of those people and see how they are significant in the, uh, in the line of, of Jesus and, and, and how he came. But, but I want to zero in on four of those names today uh, sprinkled in that list. Uh, Matthew did something very unusual here. Uh, he seems to have gone out of his way to include the names of four women in this uh, genealogy, something that was rarely done. They, they uh, had genealogies going on, they were tracking their, their, uh, their family line and all those things, but usually it was always through the, 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 the male side of things and, and didn't really mention the, the, the female side. So Matthew seems to have gone out of his way to, to mention these women. And, and these four women would have been well known to anyone reading this gospel. Uh, they're Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. Every Jewish person growing up would have heard uh, their stories. But that makes it even more peculiar that Matthew would have included them because their stories were not great, wholesome stories. Uh, These women did not have the greatest reputations. Uh, Just without going into details, uh, Tamar was guilty of incest with her father-in-law. Rahab was a prostitute from Jericho who had hidden the Israelite spies. Ruth was from Moab, and and the Moabites, time and time again, they were enemies of Israel all through their history. And Bathsheba had committed adultery with with, uh, with David, King David. This, this was not the stuff of bedtime stories, right? Uh, uh, most, of, most of the time, people try to hide the rotten branches of their family tree. It doesn't seem like Matthew is doing Jesus any favors by listing these women's names here. And, and yet, by including them, uh, including these women who are considered outcasts, Matthew is communicating something significant, something that points us toward God's reason for this season. In, in fact, it seems to be an underlying theme throughout the Christmas story. Uh, Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth, uh, Maybe you know about Nazareth, maybe you don't, but it was not very highly, highly regarded at the time. Those who, who sought to be undefiled Jews uh, probably were not going to live there by choice. They, it was located along a major highway, and so uh, they, they uh, received a lot of uh, uh, income, and they had a lot of economic dealings with non-Israelites as they passed through along this highway. The town's reputation for commercial enterprise and and catering to the Gentiles would have have been despicable for many first century Jews. It was was definitely not the place that Jewish leaders were looking for the anticipated Messiah. Uh, And and Nathaniel, uh, before he became one of Jesus' disciples, uh, heard that Jesus was from Nazareth and, uh, and he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Did not have the best of reputations. And yet Jesus called Nazareth his hometown. 
Think a minute about the shepherds. We, we uh, uh, mentioned them a couple of weeks ago. The shepherds were common people. They were uh, not really socially accepted. Many times they were thieves. They usually were very poor, but God sent direct word concerning the birth of Jesus to lowly shepherds. I mean, a whole angel choir concert happened out in the hills to this rough and tumble rabble of guys out there watching their sheep. Uh, angel choir to these guys. And then I think of the, the, the Magi, uh, you know, we three kings, right? That we, well, not, well, we, okay, well, they're not three, right? Maybe not three, we don't know. At least two, uh, more, than, more than one and less than who knows, right? But uh, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of odd, though, that, that these wise men were not Jewish from, from afar, uh, Scripture says. They were from, uh, from a long way away. They traveled all that way, uh, especially to, uh, it would have, been, would have been odd for the Jewish culture to have accepted them or, and then include them in the story and make a big deal about it, and it's, it's part of our celebrations. And I mean, Jews were not to eat or drink or even associate with Gentiles. And, um, and yet God drew those wise men to Jesus across all those miles. And, and even the fact that Matthew is writing this story, I think is significant. Matthew, until he met Jesus, was a tax collector. He would have been hated by the Jews for fraternizing with Rome and cheating them out of their hard-earned money. I think, man, all of those parts of the Christmas story are clues that point us to the ultimate reason that Jesus came. He came for Matthew, the tax collector. He came to Nazareth, the despised city, to Gentile wise men, to lowly shepherds, through a family line that included Gentile sinful women and people who were looked down upon. Why? Why would he do that? What is God's reason for this season? Why did Jesus come? It doesn't make logical sense until we read John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Plain and simple, God's reason for this season was love. You probably got there ahead of me because uh, this isn't your first, uh, first go-round at Christmas. But I think we skip over that a lot. And we, we uh, look at the story and we read the stories and we enjoy it and we get a little tear and we, we, uh, we enjoy family and we walk through the traditions. But do we really dwell on the fact that the whole reason, the motivation for, for, uh, for what we celebrate is that God loves us. Jesus came because God so loved the world. I love, love, love. I, every, I think every year without fail uh, since I ran across it, we have played that, uh, that video that we saw a little earlier, The Greatest Story Ever Told. And it, it just highlights to me the fact that God so loved the world. It's not just me in my uh, white little corner of Medina, su- su- suburbia, right? It's God loves Everyone, and that's what this story uh, uh, in in uh, in Scripture, as we think about these aspects and who Jesus came to, that's that's what we see. God so loved the, even even uh, those who have been marginalized in society, even those who have been looked down upon, those who are in need, those who have sinned. He loves each and every one of us, even as we live in this weary world. It doesn't make any sense. But that just makes it all the more wonderful. Jesus left everything of heaven and came to this weary world because he loves you. 
Maybe the most Christmassy thing you could say to someone is Jesus loves you. I know it's usually say Merry Christmas, right? Or, or uh, uh, some other uh, holiday uh, uh, greeting. Maybe it doesn't sound all that Christmassy, but it's God's reason for the season. God loves you and he sent Jesus in order to say it loud and clear. It's what we need most in this weary world, to know that someone loves us, to know that God loves us. The story of, of Jesus' birth includes so many outcasts and rejects and sinners because God wanted to highlight and circle and underline and make sure we didn't miss the fact that he loves us, all of us. He brings hope and peace and purpose to everyone. He is with us because he loves us, even those with less than stellar reputations. None of us are worthy to be loved, but he loves us anyway in this weary world. So what do you do with that? In, in, in 2020, when, when everything is topsy-turvy and hard and, and you're tired and, and, and maybe broken or confused or just maybe weary, is this the word that sums it up? How are you going to respond to the fact that God loves you? I mean, you could, you could pretty much ignore it and try to skate through the holidays as quickly as possible and hope that things get back to normal soon. And I, I mean, how's that working for you? I thought things were getting back to normal soon around June 15th. Um, that just shows how much foresight I have, I guess. But You could pretend this week over the next four or five days as we walk through all of the regular traditions and celebrations and just pretend that this year isn't any different, but it is. We've got to acknowledge that. I, I think that I think that maybe what's best is that, that we could acknowledge that, that this world is weary Maybe you're weary, but you're going to rejoice anyway. You can rejoice because Jesus has come and he brings hope and peace and he is with you because he loves you. And no matter what is happening in the world, those things are true and we can build our lives on those things. In recent years, I've I've grown to to like the worshipful, melancholy old carol in the bleak midwinter. We're not going to sing it, don't worry. But the, the last verse sums up what I think you and I can do in response to God's love for us at Christmas. And it, it just goes like this. Uh, what can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet, what can I give him? Give him my heart. Have you given him your heart? Maybe you're weary because you haven't allowed his presence to fill you. In light of his love for you and all that he has done to show it, how are you going to respond? As we close today, I, I want to uh, want to read a, a poem that that is really my favorite Christmas poem. I don't. Even, are you allowed to call it a poem if it doesn't rhyme? I don't know, but uh, but I, I, I it's it's my favorite Christmas poem. I ran across it again uh, again this week, and it brought tears to my eyes as it usually does. I, I want to I just invite you to stand with me, and, uh, and as I read this poem, I would just invite you to close your eyes and allow the, the words to just kind of sweep across your heart today, and if, if the Spirit is talking to you, then, um, then let him do it. It says, let the stable still astonish, straw, dirt floor, dull eyes, dusty flanks of donkeys, oxen. Crumbling, crooked walls, no bed to carry that pain. And then the child 
rag-wrapped, laid to cry in a trough. Who would have chosen this? Who would have said, yes, let the God of all the heavens and earth be born here in this place? Who but the same God who stands in the darker, fouler rooms of our hearts and says, yes, let the God of heaven and earth be born here in this place. It is my prayer that you let the God of heaven and earth be born fresh and new in your hearts in 2020. He loves you. That's why he came. Give him your heart. And when you do, you can rejoice even in this weary world. Our worship team's gonna come and, and lead us in the song that's kind of been, lent our theme to us this whole season. Oh, holy night. As they come, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you step into our hearts, no matter how, how disreputable or dirty or dark they might be, no matter how confused or broken or weary we might, they might seem. And you say, afresh, again, today, this year, let the God of all the universe be born here in this place. Lord, I pray that we would open our hearts to you, that, that as you are speaking to us and as your spirit is, is whispering across our souls today, that we would be open to, to giving our hearts to you, to allowing you access to our lives, to, to making that commitment, maybe, uh, maybe for the first time, maybe for, uh, for the umpteenth time, that we would make that commitment today that we love you because you have loved us. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.